Happy Easter. Good morning. This is, uh, this is a day that is unexplainably full of joy, um, that, that reaches us into the deepest places. Uh, we, you know, this beautiful cross over here, I just I love uh, what it's become. Uh, for those who weren't here on Good Friday, as Angela said, there are um, all these little, little uh, pieces of paper have sorrows on them. Deep sorrows that folks wrote and, and stuck in the chicken wire. And now it's replaced with f- fresh, beautiful, fragrant flowers growing out. And I can, you, know, you can barely see, even though they're still there, the pain is still there. You can barely see them uh, in the midst of what's growing. And I just invite you to this morning, if you get bored or if you, your mind starts to wander, just take a look up here and, and think about what the, the symbolism for your life, what, what, the, what the promise is. So uh, begin this morning with a memory uh, as we you know, look at this picture of these two disciples, hopeful beyond hope, running to a tomb that they've heard is empty. And I, I remember back in 2004, I was, I was just graduated from uh, university and I was gallivanting as people do after university. I was uh, traveling, uh, I was uh, backpacking with a couple of buddies across the world and in Christmas 2004, uh, we were in Israel. We got to go to uh, the Church of the Nativity and celebrate Christmas Eve, uh, the Church of the Nativity. And then we were, after Christmas 2004, we were shopping in a bazaar, a market, and uh, on the TV came a newsflash. There had been an earthquake just off the coast of Indonesia, and uh, there was some sort of tsunami coming. And we were um, scheduled, our next stop on that trip was India. We were going to go spend a month in India and uh, woke up the next morning to find out that a great tsunami had hit the east, uh, the east coast of India. Uh, and this tsunami, as you'll remember, was one of the worst nat- natural tragedies uh, of our time. Um, 280,000 people lost their lives. Let's just fathom that. 280,000 people lost their lives in this devastation. And um, we were set to go there next. And so we, we, we went to India nonetheless and ended up on the eastern shores uh, about a month after this happened and uh, got to see folks. I mean, they had moved. Any, anyone who had lived close to the ocean had moved miles and miles back. And uh, they were just scared of the water. I mean, they, no one would go on, on the shore. And we were with the relief agency passing out some food, some, some supplies. But this is pretty much how the whole... Uh, side of India, Sri Lanka, and a lot of uh, Thailand looked uh, after the tsunami. And um, it was, was an amazing, sort of surreal experience to see the power of, of creation, the devastation. And as I thought about that for today, that came up in my mind because uh, life really is full of tsunamis. Like, life hits us in different ways. And it can be small little waves that come and disturb us, or we can be literally or metaphorically, washed over by things that make our life feel like that. And the message of Easter is this, that God is a God who restores things that are broken and destroyed and ruined. And this is the message of the cross. Jesus hanging on the cross, broken, and the tsunami of death washing over him. 
And Easter morning is the promise that these things which happen to the world and to our lives can get put back together and uh, be, be born anew. And to, to me, this is, uh, this is uh, the, the greatest message of Easter. If we're listening to it, if we're really listening to the cross, this is what's happening. Complete devastation in our lives being put back together. And the, 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 the biggest thing that I'm struck by as I read the story is that God is conscripting and calling a people to join him in the work of aid and relief and rebuilding. And that's to me what the, the early Christians began to know. They began to understand as they looked uh, at the resurrection. And so uh, this might sound far-fetched to some of you who might think of church as a place where you go sing and where you go pray and there's a pastor who gives a sermon and then um, you know, maybe people sort like, comfort each other and then look down at other people. Like, that can be church, right? Like, we can know that, and that's the church at its worst. Uh, but church is really a group of people called to help restore the world, to go into places that have been devastated, into literal and metaphorical places that have been devastated, and to offer relief and healing. And, and aid, and then it's like we become social engineers figuring out how do we rebuild our lives in a way that a tsunami can't break again. That's what church is, and that's what we're doing here. That's what the early Christians knew. Um, church, as it's, at its finest, I think, is a group of people who've been called to respond, to help, to strengthen the world around them. And these first Christians were just beginning to understand that this is what Jesus' job was going to be for them. Uh, if you can put yourselves into the mind and hearts of the, f- the first followers, like what must have they been going through, having seen Jesus die on the cross and then raise up early in the morning on Sunday morning to come to the tomb and it being open and empty? Um, and then spending the next at least 40 days getting to hang out with Jesus, he shows up, hang out with him, he teaches them some more stuff, and then he raises, raises up into heaven and then gives them the Holy Spirit. And this, all this time, this 40 days, I'm inviting us to this morning and for the next six weeks, this is, this is like an introduction sermon for the next six weeks, as we spend time with these early, early disciples or and apostles, getting into their minds and experiences, and what just, was that, what was that like? Uh, and, and figuring out how um, their message is a message for us, too. And think about this. I'm just going to list this off a little bit. Some of their experiences, uh, especially as, as I begin to ask the question for us, what lessons can we learn as a church if we remember what they went through in the first 40 days? Like It was the first church, the first Christians, and it was something powerful and imaginative and full of color and joy and hope in ways that they'd never experienced. And so, um, what, what, what's, what therefore is the message for us as we go through this? Um, but think about this. Uh, upon seeing the risen Jesus rise up from the dead, they were divided. Some of them believed. Some of them worshipped Jesus. And other, others of them weren't quite ready. They didn't quite understand. They didn't have faith. They, they said some doubted. Some doubted. And Jesus didn't seem too concerned. He sort of let some believe and let some doubt. Uh, what does that mean for us today as we do church? Um, 
uh, oh yeah, it's two-sided. Um, now, think about this. Jesus was, for those 40 days, was working among them. He was with them. But then sometimes he was disguising himself. He, was, he showed up in un, unusual times and then showed up in other times and disguised himself and they didn't recognize him. And was with him sometimes and other times he wasn't. What does that mean for a church today who sometimes can feel the presence of God and sometimes Jesus is working among us but we can't quite feel it or see it or don't recognize it? Or Jesus had said, Jesus opened their minds during that time by helping them understand the scriptures. What does a church look like in this day and age, a group of people like them who have their mind open to reality through the scriptures? Or um, what's it like, like some of the early disciples saw the risen Jesus and then he didn't show up for a while and so they went back to their old lives. They kind of sort of shrunk back to their old lives, fishing, doing what they knew how to do best and were a bit disappointed. What is it like as a church when you see God and you see things so clearly but then then things don't go the way you think they should and you sort of find yourself back, backsliding into your old ways of life. What does that mean for us today? Or, uh, you know, finally, the, the, the church, early church receives the Holy Spirit and there's tongues, of, tongues like little, little flames of fire that came down over their head and they could speak in different languages and, and they had this newfound confidence and power. What's it like for church today to experience that same kind of moving of the Holy Spirit. So by, by looking at this, by looking at the earliest days for the next six weeks of the Christians, I'm going to remind us what to expect as we're part of this community too. And when we do this, some questions come up. It's giving you a forte. This is the introduction. Some questions come up. When life is at its darkest... And when God seems up to something much bigger than you can understand, where in church can you bring those questions? I'm going to, in the next six weeks, teach you how to come into a church, whether it's this one or another church that you go to, how to come into a church and find places to ask those deep, profound questions. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about how to help keep your life and family, and church life in balance so that you're not doing church all the time. That can be a bad thing, actually. Um, I'm going to talk about home groups. We do home groups here, so I'm bringing it from their experience all the way straight to ours. We do home groups at this church. I'm going to talk a little bit about how to get involved with home groups, and then once you're in them, how to be appropriately vulnerable. Um, how to be vulnerable when you get into those groups, so that, like the early Christians, you are sharing your deepest thoughts and experiences. Um, I'm going to talk about then why, why should the community of this king trust one another? Like, really trust one another with, with their lives. And what happens when we don't? Um, how about this one? I'm going to teach a little bit on what you should do when you're dissatisfied with church. When it's not going the way you like or when it's lame. <laughs> Sometimes it can be lame. Um, what do you do? How, do, you, do, you, do you find another church? Do you, do you stay? Do you, when, when, when do you leave church? All of those questions come up. Um, we'll talk a little bit about that over the next six weeks. And then the last thing is uh, how to go about serving at a church. 
in light of the resurrection, in light of the, the, what the earliest Christians experienced, how to serve in a place so that you can, your gift can be used to build up uh, the body without, without um, you being overstretched. So uh, this is what we're going to talk about in the next many weeks. Um, because like the people who touched Jesus and got to see him and, and have their life filled with color, if we're alive as a church and we're awake, the same experiences that they experienced should be ours as well. Uh, life being filled with awe and color and meaning and purpose. Uh, we're going to look at their life, look at their experience and see what we can learn to copy it. Um, and you know, this is Jesus calling them on the shore. this group of early people huddled together around the risen Jesus. What does that feel like? How does that work today to experience that? Uh, But here's the thing. You know, church can be confusing and frustrating. uh, But if you do it well, it can change you. It can change your relationships. It can change your attitudes. It can change your family dynamics for the better. It can heal your memories being in a place like this can heal your memories. It can heal your traumas, uh, strengthen your hope, help you know how to be selfless in your life when everything in you has always taught you to think of you first and defend you first. Uh, these aren't false promises, friends. Like this, this is what's happened in my life and many of the lives of people here. Um, because after all, we are spiritual descendants of those people who first knew Jesus and first knew what it was like to live around a resurrected king. But the place to begin with all of this, the place where we start is this, with a bit of honesty. I like this picture. There can be a disconnect, right, between what we experience here today and what they experienced then. Rather than a powerful, exciting, meaningful experience, it can sure be frustrating and confusing. Can it? As much as we have good intentions, it gets tricky. And if you've never heard a pastor, okay, this is just a little teaser. If you've never heard a pastor get real about how frustrating church can be, come next week. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get a bit, things are going to get a bit real in here. Um, <laughs> so we, but we have to start here, right? We have to just be honest that sometimes it doesn't feel like we think it might when we, when we think about the earliest Christians, and we're just going to try to name this. Um, so I'll go into this next week, but part of this is because our lives are unbalanced. We're full of responsibilities. We, can, we know that something's profoundly missing in us, but we're not sure how to get it and fill it here. Um, we're not really sure if we can trust other people. We're not really sure if we can even trust God, if we're honest, with the pain that we've gone through in our life. Uh, individualism and consumerism gets in the way. Um, and, the, and, and, and this is the place where if we really want to get healed and be changed and become people who change the world, it gets uncomfortable. We have to get honest with ourselves and with one another. And that's hard. And, and with all of this, church becomes a place that really does move in the opposite direction of all that's comfortable to us. And what we do that, at that point is we either give, our, give ourselves to it and let the power of this first community be our power as well, or we, or we give up on it and run the other way. It's no wonder that church can be confusing. 
We'll talk more about this next week. Uh, but if any of this resonates with you, if you're going, if you're nodding your head like, okay, I get this, uh, I have a story to tell you. And it starts in a garden near a gravesite 2,000 years ago at sunrise on the first day of the week with at least one woman who put herself in the right place at the right time and realized that she was experiencing the greatest power in all the universe to touch her life at her most incredible disappointment. It's a story of God's people figuring out how to take Jesus' selfless love, the thing that he just showed them how to do on the cross, and how to put that into their life and into their community and how to organize their whole life around it so that as they remembered that God is a God who both knows how to split the, the seas and rescue his people, he also has split the pathway to hell and come back. And then he teaches us how to storm the gates of hell ourselves, transform all sorts of evil things in the world into the rescue of many hurting, lonely, and broken people. And if we dare to listen to this story, if we really let it in inside of us, uh, it changes everything. So here's how it begins. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and the Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. So when the Sabbath was over, let me just get us oriented here into this life, into this world. The Sabbath was Saturday in the Jewish world. Saturday was the day of rest. It began actually at sundown on Friday night. They, they, had a, they, they did Sabbath with the rhythm of the earth. When the sun went down on Friday night, they rested to the next to sundown on Saturday. And so when the sun went down on Saturday, the Sabbath was over. So they had on Friday, remembered. They had buried Jesus in a tomb. They had put him in the ground, and the tomb was sealed on Friday. And Friday night came, and they buried him there. And it said they went, um, they, went, they prepared it, and they went home and rested because it was the Sabbath. They're not allowed to do work on the Sabbath. So they went, and they rested for the day. And on Saturday night, when the Sabbath was over, they went out to the marketplace to find spices. They went to find myrrh and aloes and things of this nature because even though Jesus was dead they still wanted to care for him and loved him and, and they were going to come back on Sunday morning and, um, and give him some spices now who are we talking about here Mary Magdalene for sure all of the gospels tell us this Mary Magdalene a woman disciple who Jesus healed from seven demons it says that means that her life was messed up like, think about someone on the street corner who you passed, and you're like, that person's life is messed up to the max. They're homeless. They are talking to themselves. They're screaming. They're twitching. They're walking around at all the wrong time of night in the wrong place. That's Mary Magdalene. That's who she was. Jesus came and healed her from that, restored her, and brought her into her right mind and um, created a new life for her. And uh, if there's anyone, more, there was no one more devoted to Jesus than this woman. And so she, she was there at his cross. She was there and he was buried. And she was there coming on the first day. So we're talking about Mary Magdalene. We're also talking about Mary, 
the mother of James and Joseph. So we don't know who this is, really. Uh, this could be the mother of the apostle James. There's two James apostles. Uh, could have been her, or it could have been Jesus' aunt. The Gospel of John says it explicitly. Jesus' aunt was there. Um, so it could be her, um, his mother's, mother's sister. And Salome, or Salome. Uh, this is probably uh, the mother of the other James. So there's two James, James disciples, and both of their mothers likely came to, uh, came to the tomb. So that's, that's who we have. Who's missing? The men. Think about that. The women. It's the women who come. The, the men are perhaps caring for Jesus' mother, Jesus' mother didn't come to the tomb on the early days. She was grieving, probably. Uh, they may have been with her, um, but you know we also know they like to sleep. I mean, just read the Gospels. They were always falling asleep. So they're probably still sleeping. The women come. I mean, this is so profound. Let's think about this for a second. It's the women who get up early and prepare the spices. I read, I read a... Um, a book once called If It Wasn't For The Women. And it was a book about how if it wasn't for the women, church would fall apart. And it's true. The women, the women of Jesus' life and the women of every church I've ever known have been a solid, steady, steadfast presence in being the people of God. I'm going to start tiptoeing gently on something here. Who, who was the one who ate the apple? Eve. And who was the one who couldn't resist when Eve said, you should eat this apple? Adam, okay. They're, they're in a garden. There's something happening here. It's new creation. I don't, know, I don't know if it's that Jesus needed to redeem first, the first person who ate of the apple. I'm not talking about women being evil or weak. I'm talking about women being the ones who take responsibility and who are strong enough and courageous enough to face what they've done in this life and come and be the one devoted to Jesus. I know many of you women are just like this. The strength of, and, and devotion of the women of churches are profound. And this is what we have here at the beginning as well. But where are the men? We have to ask ourselves this. This is profound. So here's what happens. They get up early. They get up at, you know, if you're, if you're a fisherman, if you know what it's like to get up when it's not even light yet, when it's still dark, but it's, you know, it's morning time. If you're, if you're a camper, you know what this is like. There's just something mysterious and profound about the, that moment before the sun comes up and it's still dark, but it's, somehow it's morning. And they're up. They're up early. They know that they have to get a good night's sleep, but they're up and they're going to come and they're going to, even though he's dead, they're going to, they're going to care for Jesus, bring him spices. They're going to be devoted to him. Um, there was a, uh, a first, uh, the first big critique against early Christianity, the first one we know of at least, was from a guy named Celsus, who was an atheist. He didn't like Christianity. And one of the reasons why he said Christianity couldn't be true is because the women were the ones who gave the testimony. And they said that they were hysterical. How can you trust a hysterical woman? 
In Origen, the great church father wrote a, a great response, and he said to Celsius, first of all, you don't understand the strength and the power of women. And second of all, they weren't hysterical. They were of the right mind. They knew what they were doing. So here they are vividly in the dark of morning. Mark tells us this. Before the rising of the sun, during, if you translate the Greek, during the deep, more, uh, deep, in the deep darkness, it was exceedingly morning. That's how it's translated. And they're coming to someone who once called himself the Lord of the Sabbath. So they're chatting on the way. They're asking themselves. And I don't know, when you go to a funeral or when you go to, to a gravesite and people are deeply grieving. Remember, they're deeply sad. They're deeply grieving. When, when, when you go into spaces like that, what do you say to one another, right? Like how, do you, how do you console one another? What do you say to someone who's just lost their beloved? They don't know what to say. They're, they're, that's the state of mind they're going in. They're sad. They don't know what to do other than to come to show Jesus love even in, in his death. And they're chatting. They're saying, well, how, what are we going to do? We don't, we don't have a plan of action. There's a huge stone in the way of this tomb. How are we going to roll it away? And the gospel writer of Mark says, as they were saying that, as they were chatting through their grief with one another, they looked up and immediately they saw it. The door was opened. It was rolled back. And so they came up to the tomb um, and looked in. I love this picture. It says they were stupefied almost, that they thought it was going to be shut and then they saw it, and what must have been going through their mind? Who knows? But it could have been, who's taken Jesus? We know Mary Magdalene thought that. Uh-oh, they've come and they've stolen. Their minds aren't going to, oh, he's resurrected and everything's right and new. That's not where their state of mind was. Someone's taken him. Or what if someone rolled the tomb back and some wild animals got to him? You can see why they wouldn't want, not want to peer in. And it says they go in and they... They find that he was gone. It's almost like God was pulling them into something unexpected. Their devotion in their sadness was drawing them in. Uh, their body was probably moving faster than their brain. They had no idea what was happening, even though he told them what was going to happen. And here's the thing. Christianity, the life of faith, hits us there. It hits us at our wildest hopes, at those vulnerable places where we're not sure What's going to happen next in life? Christianity hits us there. And when it does, uh, we, we find, as they did, uh, that something more than they could ever have expected is going to happen. So they come into the tomb. And they're not even hesitant. They're just, they look in. Um, and they see an angel. Different gospels describe the diff- angel differently. But it says for, uh, in Mark that it was a young young man, a young boy, and they, saw, they looked and they saw a young boy sitting there. This is more of an angelic version. Uh, and they were alarmed at this young boy. And before they could say anything to him, he, he speaks. He says to them, don't be alarmed. You're seeking, the Jesus, seeking Jesus, the crucified Nazarene. He's been raised. He is not here. Look, there's the place they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you'll see him, just as he told you. I love this little dialogue. It's like this little boy, uh, he's like, I know you, I've been watching you, I'm in the loop here. Imagine getting this message 
What, what in the midst of their chaos? Not here, then where? He was here and we laid him down. And then comes the message. He has been raised. I guarantee that any of us who struggle with cynicism or skepticism wouldn't have believed this angel. Yeah, right. Raised? Can I really trust this? Can I really trust that the trauma that I've just went through is reversed? God has the power to reverse my deepest pain and trauma? The cynics probably couldn't. You know, and like I said before, half of them believed and half of them couldn't quite bring themselves to believe. And God seems to be so patient with, with the people who couldn't quite believe it. And so the angel says to the, to the women, go, um, go and tell your brothers. Um, the book of Mark probably has lost its ending in the manuscripts, but it says that they were so afraid that they left and didn't tell anyone. But the other, the other, uh, the other gospels give it to us. They go and tell Simon Peter and, and John, especially, and all the... And all the, the, the um, the disciples, and it says that it's the, what they said to them sounded like nonsense. What you, an angel, and he's not there. We got to go see for ourselves. And off runs Peter, and off runs John, and they do the same thing. But they don't get an angel; they just get nothing. Think about that. What does that mean? The women who were strong enough and bold enough to get up in the morning, even though they had no idea what was going to happen, get the angel, and the men who were just lagging behind a little bit. It's not any less true that Jesus was raised. They just don't get to see it yet. He'll show up to them. But it says, Peter came and didn't find him, so he left. They only found the grave clothes. And the story continues, and I'll continue the story next week. Um, but the question, to bring it home here, the question is this. What if we tried today to figure out how to get back there Maybe not doing exactly things the way that they did, but how to get back to that place where we are overcome by the unexpected, mysterious, powerful work of the Creator God. How do we do that as a church? I think this, I think this particular church, if, if I'm going to be a bit sort of now a bit vulnerable and a bit transparent, I think this church a decade ago figured it out, was there. Uh, and then the tsunami of all of these challenging church dynamics washed a bit over. That's, that's our story, if, we, if we're honest. That's our story. And I think we're at that place right now in this community once again, where we can ask ourselves, how do we get back to that place? And I'll say this, just a few more remarks here about where we're going with this. When I get into this teaching, we have to remember first that as a church, to get back there, we shouldn't be doing too much. We want a Sabbath. We want to be restful. You can't always be doing church. And we want to resist our culture, which is always producing, always at work, always hard at it. We don't want to be that. But here's the other thing. We're also not going to be drawn into consumerism and individualism and all the things which threatens our society and churches. We're not going to get distracted from our mission. We're going to stay focused on it. 
so the next six weeks, I'm going to teach on this with this, the, the resurrection stories. How do we stay focused as a church? How do, we, uh, how do we do it? And if you haven't been to church in a while or have been frustrated with church, the next six weeks would be a great chance for you to come and listen to this. Uh, it's basically a how-to's. How, what to expect from a good church, how to help it get there if it's not there, and, um, and how, to, how to, to find this mysterious work within a community of individuals who are all still in pro- process. Let's <laughs> think it nicely. Um, I'm going to help those of you who have some deep questions about God or how your life feels like it's overscheduled or overburdened, how to come into a church and find some answers, or at least find the similar people who are asking the same questions, uh, and to figure out where maybe your life needs to be put a little bit back in harmony. Uh, why and how to do home groups uh, in Sunday mornings. When you come on, I'm gonna get practical. When you come on Sunday mornings, what do you do here? How do you use this time to meet the living God and to grow in faith, and to grow in hope, and to grow in love. I'm going to teach on that. Um, how to do home groups, how to get involved, how to, how to do it in a way that you can stick with it until you finally find the place where you're being vulnerable and the people next to you are being vulnerable back to you. Um, how to help realize that church is a calling. Church isn't a product that you go and you consume and you move on if the product fails you. How to, how to be called to a place and to discern if and when you're called there or if God is calling you elsewhere. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about that um, and, and, and so forth. You get the point. Uh, but the, the point of all of this is for our church, for the people of God, his dreams are always bigger than our dreams. His, his desires for who he wants us to be as a people are always bigger than we think. Uh, so if it's your... I'm going to get personal here. Is your life or family life unhealthy or out of control? Resurrection means that in any church, some people should be finding their lives put back together and their families stabilized. And church should always create space for people of your gift is to help people whose personal and family lives are out of whack. Church creates space for you to come in and for you to help them. Church also should be a place where there's always people here that are far from God asking, who is this God? I don't quite believe, but I want to know. We should always have space, and there should always be something going on for people who are far from God. And there should always be space for people who are passionate about helping people who are far from God. See how this is going both ways? It's space for people who need healing and wholeness and getting their questions answered and people there to help. In a resurrected church, in a church that's faced on the resurrection, uh, home groups should become the place where you feel most alive and closest to God. Talk about that as a big dream. Church should be a place where young Christians are shaped and grown, at least some of them, and formed into future leaders, where kids learn how to grow close to God in their own faith and their hope and their love, and then are prepped for the world that they're going to enter into. Church should be a place where we learn to pool our resources together in a powerful way uh, to help 
dozens, if not hundreds of people who are struggling. And church, if those were the things church do, at its core, church should be the place where you come into and you find people who should be hostile to one another out there, people groups, races, people with different perspectives. Church should be the place where you go, on Facebook they'd be enemies, but here they're somehow friends and they mysteriously understand one another. That's church. And if it's anything less than that, then we haven't yet listened to the resurrection stories. So what to do with this? Uh, Go home today. I I invite you, I challenge you. Go home and read the resurrection stories. It's the last one or two chapters of each of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the last one or two chapters of each of those books are the resurrection stories that we're going to be talking about for the next five weeks coming. I challenge you to go read them. They're not very long, but there's a lot there. Um, if, you're, if you're new here at Grassroots or if you've been here for a time and, don't want, and want to get involved with where this church is going, there's an info piano back there with a, a card. Uh, make yourself known. Get your, get your email out there and we'll, uh, we'll contact you. Um, and ne- come back next week. At the end of next week, after church, every month we do a meal, a lunch, for people who aren't fully yet engaged at Grassroots whether it's your first time or whether you've been here for five years and haven't ever found your way into what I'm talking about. There's a lunch for you next week after church. It's free lunch, noon. Uh, I will, uh, I'll be there. A bunch of other people will be there, and we'll talk about how to, how to do this, how to get involved with this church. Uh, and finally, oh, I scuffed over all that. Finally, uh, come for the next five weeks. I challenge you this. If you're a person who doesn't come to church or has had bad experiences. I'm going to get a bit raw next week. You're invited to come witness that. Um, Come for the next six weeks and figure out what it is to do church in this day and age well. Here's where I end today. I don't think any of us wants to just be a comfortable human being, comfortable with their lives. Uh, We want to be disciples. We want to be making a difference in this world. We want to be seeing the evils of our place be pushed back and replaced with God's very idea for how the world should work. We don't want to be conformed to the patterns of this world. We want to be a community who's, been, who's taken Jesus' selfless love and taken it seriously. We want to give ourselves away. We want to forgive profoundly, learn to place our identities in God and nothing else. And we want to give this to our kids. We don't want our kids to miss this, do we? We want to find real connection, life-giving connection in this place. And we want to meet the risen Jesus Christ. So the invitation is here. All of this stuff is pipe dreamish, if not for the resurrection. All of this stuff shouldn't happen except for the power of the God who brought his son back from the dead. And this church is in process. We have some ways to go, but we're going to talk about that in the coming weeks and and the implications. So, uh, friends, what would it look like? What would it look like if this small community of people figured out and experienced the resurrected Jesus like they did at the beginning? That's, That's the question. What would change? What could happen here? 
in the next five, 10 years if we oriented ourselves to this cross which bears flowers. Friends, there, there are just a few flowers left here uh, that the kids, the kids didn't get to. And so if you're compelled during the communion, during the next few songs, to come up and place your own flower in the cross to fill it out and complete it, the invitation is there. And we turn, finally, our attention to this table um, that has bread and, and cracker and juice on it. And Jesus says, every time you gather together, he told his early disciples, his disciples, every time you gather together, do this in memory of me, remembering that selfless love is at the DNA of who you are supposed to be. And that's the message of taking his broken body and his shed blood into us as we become selfless lovers for a world who needs to get put back together again. So friends, the table is set. Everyone here is welcome.